2: Welcome to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Class with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are honored to be interviewing Professor Donald J. Boudreaux. Ron, this is just going to be another great show, and I know this time is going to absolutely fly by. Uh, Our (laughs) guest today is... Uh, a, 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 has so many different areas that we could talk to him about, and and he's probably going to jump all over the place because I I'm I'm not going to be able to resist asking him lots of different questions about lots of different subjects. Totally, but great. let me, uh, <laughs> yeah, let me let me quick uh, re- read the 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 bio. Um, Donald J. Boudreaux is a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center, and a professor of economics and former economics department chair at George Mason University. Go Patriots. He uh, specializes in globalization and trade, law, and economics, and antitrust, e- 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 antitrust economics, Ron, which is a bit like saying that he has a restaurant that has both or great Italian, Mexican, Asian, and Pakistani food. Right? <laughs> 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 so um, he is committed to making uh, economics more accessible to a wider audience and has lectured across the United States, Canada, Latin America, and Europe On a wide variety of topics, including antitrust law and international trade. He is the author of the books Hypocrites and Halfwits, A Daily Dose of Sanity from Cafe Hayek, which I know you're going to talk to him about, and Globalization. His articles have appeared in such publications as, of course, Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, and numerous scholarly journals as well. He writes a blog with Russ Roberts called Cafe Hayek, which, as we've been talking about in our social media posts, is just, we consider it must-reading. Previously, he was president of the Foundation for Economic Education, and folks who listen to our Free Rider Friday shows will note that we often pull stuff from that site for conversation. and That uh, is associate uh, professor of legal studies at economics at uh, uh, Clemson University, and he also serves as an adjunct scholar to the Cato Institute. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Donald Boudreaux. I'm happy to be here. I love the introduction. Well, that Reagan quotation is fabulous. Well, okay, now I'm going to stop what I'm going to say. You are the first person, and we've had lots and lots of people on who has ever mentioned that. <laughs> so, <Really>? thank you. <laughs> really? And we, we've, had, we've had David Friedman on, we've had Thomas Sowell on, we've had uh, uh, Deirdre McCloskey on, and you're the first person to, to uh, mention it. So, thank you. That We really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm a
1: big fan of all those people, but I'm also a big fan of the late Julian Simon, who's in a notion that, is that the ultimate resource is the human mind. And that had a big impact on me when I first read that. And that is the point that Reagan is making in that wonderful quotation that you opened the show with.
3: You know, Don, just parenthetically, that is from his 1988 uh, speech to the uh, Moscow State University. So he's standing in front of a bust of Lenin. And he's talking to a bunch of students and it's a fabulous speech. If you haven't read it, it was written by Joshua Gilder, the nephew of George Gilder. Um, so. yeah, no,
1: I, I I haven't, but boy, have times have times changed in the last thirty years.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: absolutely so one thing i want to quick mention uh don is that i i I mentioned that we do a show every month uh, called free rider friday in which we just rather than do a topical show or or an interview ron and i just bounce around from topic to topic and um oftentimes we'll pull stuff from cafe hayek but i i want to just mention i think you have a free rider problem at cafe hayek with your partner when's the last time russ roberts posted (laughs) anything over there
3: (laughs) Uh, yeah russ has stopped uh,
1: <laughs> Blogging—he hasn't blogged in a few years—and although it was, you know, we, we we still talk, you know, weekly, on uh, email, uh, frequently. Um, he's no longer at George Mason, but he still lives in the D.C. area. Uh, Russ just has turned all of his attention to doing his his econ talk podcasts, and he's kind of left left the blogging to me. It was never a discussion. Um, he's certainly welcome <laughs> to return to blogging. At any time, but uh I've kind of taken it over and I do more and more, just consider it my blog now uh but uh Russ got it started he's the one who persuaded me to begin blogging, but so he's not free writing on me. he's just sort of stepped out of the picture
2: <laughs> yes, and we're big big fans of econ talk as well, so really appreciate the work that both of you guys are doing and in this notion of making economics more accessible to a a wider audience you know you you do three, four, five posts a day now. Some more, more recently, they have been posts of older stuff that you've done, but that still hasn't stopped you. You're still writing new stuff on a regular basis. What how, you just are you all the time in your blog? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I I do it quite a lot. Yeah, it's it's
2: <laughs> my way of
1: communicating and it's my way of developing ideas. You know. Um, I don't write as many academic papers now as I, as I once did, although I still do. And a lot of the, a lot of the ideas I get for academic papers, I, I sort of try out in blog posts. And so um, it's not, it, I don't, for me, blogging is not a, always a substitute for my other work. Uh, it's a complement to it. I, I try out some teaching ideas. Sometimes when I'm giving lectures to classes, a student will ask me a question. And I'll think, oh, that's a good question. I haven't quite heard it. You know the, the 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 situation explored in quite that way, and so that'll inspire blog posts. So I I in, I enjoy it. I, it. For me, it's not it's not work, uh, and a lot of a lot of the time, it's just. It's, I, I confess, it's spleen venting. It it makes me feel good <laughs> to express myself. Otherwise, I have this frustration that would be kept inside of me and probably cause me to die of a stroke.
2: B- better than a prescription to Xanax or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the- it's also a it's also a medical device for me.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and on that, I wanted to 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 share something with you that I've heard recently. One of the the themes of this show that Ron and I often talk about is the misapplication of the labor theory of value in business, and and how some of these 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 bad ideas just seem to continue to manifest themselves and not. Not a month ago, I heard a fairly famous economist talking about why he thought that Bitcoin had value. And the, his rationale was, well, it takes a lot of electricity to mine Bitcoin. And that's why it's valuable.
1: Yeah. I should warn you at the beginning, I'm no expert on cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, blockchain, I don't know that much about that stuff. If, if you read my blog, you don't see me writing a lot about it because that's no. area. No. It's not, but, but uh, obviously, the, 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 for anything, whether it be a cryptocurrency or whether it be a diamond, no matter what it is, the amount of resources people are willing to put in to acquire something is determined by how valuable they assess that thing. People are willing to pay uh, a lot of. They're willing to devote a lot of resources, including electricity, to mine the stuff. Because they think it has value. The value doesn't come from the inputs put into it. The value of the thing determines the amount of inputs that go into acquiring. It.
2: And and that's the thing that we battle all the time. Because what we see is businesses, you know, even the airlines saying, "Well, we need we need to increase our prices because fuel costs have gone up." <laughs> We're just yeah, like, "Well, what?" I'm not a business person, also, but obviously
1: businesses have to cover their have to cover their costs. But uh, if, if raising your price, it, it, if your service is no more valuable to your customers, uh, uh, then when you raise your price, you're going to lose a lot of business. And the, your customers don't care why your prices are rising. Uh, and so, you, yeah, value, value just not, is not imparted from the inputs into the output. Value comes from the outputs. And that value determines the 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 array of inputs that are are used to to produce those outputs
2: and and that is the surprising thing that ron and i see in our conversations with with business leaders there's still this thought that that it's you know their their stuff whatever it is a product a service or even sometimes the knowledge that they impart that it has objective value because of the effort and it's just just bizarre
1: yeah it's a it it I mean, it's a it's a it's a, it is a widespread misunderstanding, and I'm sure not just among business people, just among the general general public. It, there are a lot of wide there are a lot of misunderstandings that are widespread, unfortunately, about economics.
2: Absolutely. Well, I wanted to quickly. I've just got about three minutes left before the the first break, and I wanted to ask you about uh, a, a, the the forward that you wrote to the the book on, on the the essential Hayek that you wrote for the the Foundation for Economic Education. Ron and I have done a show on that book already, and in going back and preparing for this show, I wanted to ask you about why why is is Friedrich Hayek one of your heroes?
1: Friedrich Hayek is one of my heroes. I mean, uh, he, he is my greatest hero, uh, mm-hmm. intellectual hero, because of the depth of his thought, the humanity of his thought, the subtlety of his his thought. I think he was just a very wise and perceptive uh, uh, scholar. Um, he recognized that you know, he, more than anyone in the 20th century, he... Ex- Hayek explained that uh social order is not the result of any kind of conscious human plan and it could it cannot be the result of any conscious human plan. Uh social order the the order that we live in uh this great he called it the great society which is un- you know unfortunately it's confused with Lyndon Johnson's great society. He explained right. that this order emerges from the individual actions of people uh, as we compete and cooperate with, with each other within a private property and rule of law system. And the way Hayek explained that in the many writings that he did, I just found to be really attractive and, and inspiring.
2: And one of the subtleties that I just love is his notion of the difference between the, the law and legislation. Could you expound on that for about a minute or so? Oh, yeah. yeah this is central to the point. So we use law and legislation synonymously as
1: terms, and I think that's a mistake. I I try never to do it. Uh, Legislation is what governments do. It it can be good or bad. Legislation is a dictate that government imposes on its citizens. Uh, Law, in contrast, are the rules of behavior that we all come to expect others to live by and that we want ourselves to live by. Uh, and so law emerges unplanned from the vast array of human action that takes place on a daily basis. Legislation is designed and imposed consciously by government.
2: Great. Yes. Thanks for that explanation. It's a a terrific notion. Well, we're up against our first break. We want to remind you, our audience, that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at Varisage.com. Of course, the website, thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes uh, for this show and uh, all of our previous shows, as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor and the folks who handle our great social media leading results.
4: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Don Boudreau, a economist who has taught me just a ton of economics. Just really, I'll never be able to repay you, Don, for all the wisdom. Uh, <laughs> you've given me, but um, I love. I think I first heard you make that distinction between law and legislation, and you wanted to elaborate on that point. So I'll I'll, I'll let you do that.
4: Oh yeah, it just
1: it's a simple point. You know the the, um, the uh, why is murder illegal, for example? And it's, I, I tell my students, if the I live in Virginia, and so if the state of Virginia somehow wiped uh, accidentally wiped its its legis its, its statute books free of any prohibitions on murder. It's not as if we'd all think, okay, it's fine to go around murdering people. It's still something that human beings will, will, will not tolerate. Um, and so law, murder is, is wrong and unlawful, not because some government declared it to be wrong and unlawful. Uh, it's wrong because we human beings understand it to be unlawful, and, and governments codify that understanding in the statute books. And so you know, I, I think the impo- it is very important to distinguish between those rules that emerge from our interactions with each other from those rules that are simply handed down uh, by a government
3: right is it fair to say Don that legislation is also m- more arbitrary I mean you know why 55 miles per hour for example why not 60 yeah. or 50 yeah. or yeah. whatever
1: absolutely absolutely you know so legislation can, can serve good purposes um, but yes by all, by it's very nature. It's it's more arbitrary. It's something that some humans designed. Like law, is you, much more nuanced. Like, I like your example of the 55. I, I tell my students when I discuss this with them, I say I ask them. I say, I want a show of hands. How many of you uh, have ever consciously driven above at a speed above the posted speed limit? And of course, they all raise their hand, and I do too. Right. And so the legislation is that you know, if you can't go faster than 55 mph, the real law. Is that you can go faster than 55 MPH you know you, 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 in, in most places you can drive you know 60 or 62 63 at a 55 mile an hour zone and you won't get pulled over by a police officer so the law in that case differs from the legislation and I think the law is better and the legislation is more arbitrary
3: right right well, Don, you and Ed were talking earlier about how much economic misunderstanding there is out there and, you know, around the labor theory of value. I've got another one for you. I've got to ask you about this because I know it's in your wheelhouse. You wrote the book Globalization. I'm thinking about Trump's tariffs, but, but, but oh. even broader than that, I'm, I'm thinking about why are we still talking and caring about trade deficits oh, when, when you know, countries don't compete, companies do. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. yes. uh, Why do we still care about this? And why are even economists? Some economists on the other side of this debate, w- which amazes me, that you can find a economist that kind of is arguing for Trump's policies. But there are a few I've heard. Why? A handful. Why is not this? many? But yeah. It, true. Yes. True.
1: Yep. Uh, it, it, it's a really good question. And this is this is if you read my blog, you know, this is probably one of my biggest pet peeve. Uh, There's no concept in economics that is responsible for more confusion and policy mischief than the concept of the trade deficit. It it means exactly, first of all, uh, it doesn't have the meaning that people think it has. A a lot of the discussions are absolutely just meaningless. But to the extent that it has meaning, uh, the trade deficit means the opposite of what most people think it means. Most people think that the trade deficit uh, is is evidence of, of either bad policies here at home or of some nefarious uh, 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 trade cheating by our, our trade partners. Uh, but in fact, it's not. A trade, a trade deficit means that foreigners are investing more in our country. They want to invest here. And you know, who, no one wants to invest in a country that's, or a place that's going down the toilet. And so our trade deficit rises as foreigners when global investors want to invest more in america that 's a good thing uh, it 's it's, it's evidence uh, that at least relatively to other countries, the united states economy is is strong and promising uh, and when that capital comes to the united states it it, it makes us a stronger and, and, and more vibrant and more dynamic and entrepreneurial and competitive economy. Uh, but to listen to people like President Trump and his economic advisors and a lot of people in the mainstream press talk about the trade deficit, they they just get it exactly backwards. It's very frustrating.
3: It's an accounting fiction, isn't it? It's not economic reality at all. It's just accounting.
1: I wish it wouldn't exist. You know, there there are no trade figures showing how much the people of the island of Manhattan buy from and sell to people outside of the island of Manhattan. And yet, the people on the island of Manhattan seem to do pretty well Economically, right. and the same would be true for each each country. Uh, uh, it, it, it is an accounting uh, artifact, and the accounting artifact uh, has been responsible for all sorts of of of, of mischief.
3: Yeah, good Good thing our founders set up a free trade zone with the 50, or, well, at the time, 13, but, you know, eventually with yeah. the 50 states. It, it, and we're not tracking the, you know, the deficit between California and Iowa.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and you know, it, 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 I'm glad you, you mentioned that, Ron, because um, one, of the, one of the main purposes of the 1787 Philadelphia Constitutional Convention was to make the United States a large free trade zone. They didn't use that term. That term wasn't current at that time, but that was one of the purposes of the Constitutional Convention, to to prevent states and localities from obstructing trade between Americans. And, you know, as our our nation grew, you know, now it's obviously, it's it's, it's transcontinental. It's even bigger than that. We have, you know, Alaska and Hawaii. And we're this giant free trade zone. And the fruits of this, free trade among Americans are there for for all to see it's not the only thing responsible for our prosperity but it's certainly a major uh, 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 element in that cause our prosperity and a free trade is good but for people living in Maine with people living in Arizona it's equally good for people living in Maine and people living in in Canada and people living in in Uzbekistan and China
3: right right yeah I mean Minnesota doesn't have to grow its own bananas and that's a good thing (laughs) Took, yeah. You know, we That's had th- we had Thomas Sowell on and talking about his book Basic Economics, yeah. and and I yeah. and I, yeah, and I know you know this fact. It it kind of surprised me, but he points out that the U.S. economy ran a trade surplus in every year of the Great Depression.
1: Yeah. yeah, So I did. I went back and looked a few years ago at my blog. I looked at it by the by the month. I looked at each of the 120 months of the 1930s. And uh, in only uh, I think it's 12 of those 120 months, uh, did the United States run a trade deficit? Uh, uh, and in, in, in no year did it, no year did it run a trade uh, deficit. It ran trade surpluses the whole time. And, and, and as an economist, a good economist understands, because the depression meant that the economy was suffering. The excuse me, the American economy in the 1930s was a horrible place to invest, and so and so capital left our economy, didn't come into our economy, and we paid the price in terms of you know lingering uh, a deep uh, destructive depression. If trade deficits trade deficits correspond with good economic times, trade surpluses tend to correspond with bad economic times.
3: Right. Right. And that's even true internationally, right? I think Seoul makes that point as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, if, um, I forget which country it was about 20 years ago, there was some major coup in one of the African countries. Maybe, maybe it was what's now the Congo. I forget which, which one it was. And and someone happened to be gathering statistics on it. And and like, just as the coup was playing out, that country's uh, trade surplus went, went, went way up. People were pulling their pulling capital out of the country. Uh, so if you, if you want to get rid of a trade deficit, uh, make your country a, a, an unattractive, destructive place to invest, and you'll have a trade <laughs> surplus overnight. But, of course, you'll be really poor. Yeah, And, 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 you, and the, think, the thing that is very frustrating about President Trump is he talks about wanting to make America great again. Well, of course, you know, who doesn't want to make their country as great as possible? Uh, so I'm all in favor of us being made great. But when you're made great, then you become a beacon for investment. You become a magnet for investment. Uh, and he doesn't understand that the policies that, the, the, the goal he wants to achieve to make America an economic dynamo again are precisely policies that will uh, raise the American trade deficit, which he thinks wrongly is somehow bad and, and evidence of, of malfunction rather than of, 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 uh, of economic health.
3: Right, right. It's a zero sum view of the world that drives us crazy. But, but
1: yeah, it's a very zero sum view of the world. 35.
3: While we're on the su- while we're on the subject of Trump, Don, I got to ask you: What did you think of the tax reform or the tax legislation? Maybe I should say,
1: yeah, uh, So that's not my area of expertise. So I defer mostly to you know my, my colleagues who study these things more carefully than I do. But to the extent that I have an opinion directly about it, and what my colleagues say is uh it, 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 like all things, the question is as compared to what uh right. it, it it it's not the ideal tax system at all. I would have preferred much deeper uh and broader tax cuts mm-hmm. uh, but the the taxes do seem to have tax rates are somewhat lower now than they were before, and to that extent it's it's uh, it's good. My general rule is anything that lowers uh, the rate of taxation is good. Anything that raises it is bad. I understand right. that, which I believe are real. There are equity issues, and there are some technical issues about tax administration and and how they fall that have to be considered. Uh, so, I, my, my answer. I'm sorry for rambling on, but my answer is to the extent that I have a professional opinion, I give it a. And, and recognizing that the, that you have to compare it to any likely alternative. I, mean, I give it a, I give it
3: a C. Okay. That, no, that's but what do you think? Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 well, I did like the, the corporate tax side of the, the reform. I didn't like the individual like you. I think they should have gone further, but just yeah. on that reform point, Don, I would love your, even just your, per, you know, a uh, professional opinion. What kind of alternative, if you could replace our current income tax, which Jimmy Carter called a disgrace? Would you be in favor of like a flat tax or a national sales tax or a VAT? What, what would you prefer to replace it with?
1: So I, I don't like any taxes. So this is always kind of a difficult discussion <laughs> for me. But, but it's a legitimate <laughs> question. Uh, if, if we stick with taxing income, then, then an easy answer is it definitely should be flat. Right. I, I favor getting rid of lots of deductions and just having one rate as low as possible, by the way. Uh, it's crazy to raise a tax rate on productive activity as people become more productive. Uh, it's just nuts, but that's what a progressive system of taxation does. The deeper question is, you know, do we switch from uh, an income tax to a consumption tax? Uh, my priors are that a consumption tax is probably better than an income tax, but I worry about coming out Full throatedly in favor of a consumption tax uh, because I don't trust the political process to substitute to get rid of the income tax. Uh, I worry that supporting a consumption tax would be supporting an, a tax in addition to an income tax. So uh, you, I think you'd want- probably a consumption tax instead of an income tax would be good, but uh, a consumption tax in addition to an income
3: tax would be a calamity. Right. You'd want to repeal that. Whatever it is, 16th Amendment, I forget, whatever bro- ushered in the income tax <laughs> before you yeah, put in a batter and, or something. And, 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 and re- repeal it and make sure it stays repealed, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, Don, this has been fantastic, and unfortunately I knew this would just fly by, but we're up against our next break. And folks, I would like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, send us an email at asktsoe at com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Abacus Next.
0: future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime, from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com.
4: And
2: here we are on the Soul of Enterprise live with our next segment with Donald Boudreau. Uh, we are thrilled to have him on the show, uh, prof- uh, Professor. I wanted to ask you about the latest craziness that I uh, we see going on, and that is this notion of we need to break up Facebook or Amazon or Apple or and well, maybe it's not not or maybe Google. W- what's going on with this? What, what why do we what where, where, where are people what are people thinking? <laughs>
1: Uh, it's They're not. It's economic hysteria, uh, political hysteria. Um, and I happen to know something about the history of was of, of one of the things I've, I did a lot of research on uh, earlier in my career. And, you know, uh, there are always, at any time in a, an economy like the United States, there are always firms that appear to be dominant. Uh, you know, in the 1930s, it was a an and P. A and p is now bankrupt. It, it's history. Um, uh, in the 70s, people worried about the power of General Motors and Ford and Chrysler and American Motors, the, the big four. Uh, anyone who knows history knows that a firm that happens today to be in the news and apparently dominant is a firm that's constantly subject to, co- to competition. The notion that today's big firms like Google and Facebook uh, are uh, uh, need to be broken up, I find to be especially crazy because – you know the all you need now to compete uh, against these firms you just need a computer and you need a good idea and you need to get your website out there uh the, the 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 startup costs are a lot lower than they were for the you know the brick and mortar firms of the past um and 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 more importantly here consumers what do consumers pay for facebook and google nothing they make all their revenues off of advertising and uh, So the main concern that people have had throughout history about monopolies is that, well, you know, if a friend becomes a monopoly, it's going to withhold supplies and raise prices. I don't see any evidence that Google or Facebook are trying to withhold their services from consumers, quite the opposite. And consumers pay zero price for access to these, to these services. And, um, the fact that the people, these pundits mistake the fact that these firms are profitable and big uh, for their being somehow monopolistic. But they're profitable profitable and big not because they're monopolistic. They're profitable and big because they satisfy a lot of consumers who voluntarily choose to use them and advertisers who voluntarily choose to advertise on their sites. and the, they, And they know it the moment they start letting up, they will have competitors who will displace them from their top positions. That has been the way it, 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 of American business from the beginning. I see no reason at all to believe it's any different today.
2: Yeah, it is it is amazing. They say, well, somehow it's just different because, you know, in order to start up a social media site that, well, you know, I, I and, and this happened this week. I got invitations to no less than, than three, it has to be probably the last two weeks, new social media sites based on blockchain and Bitcoin that are trying to replace that with the, and their mantra is, you will own your data on this site, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's already beginning to happen. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, I was talking to a colleague
1: yesterday. It was only, what, 10, 15 years ago where people thought Walmart was like, going to take over the world and, and dominant, you know, this, re, this this retailing uh, mega giant. And, you know, now it's Amazon. Uh, no one worries about Walmart anymore. And I guarantee you, uh, uh, Ed and Ron, uh, I don't know how many years, five years, 10 years, maybe 15 years, uh, Amazon will be subject to some other new competitor, some, other, some company that probably hasn't yet even started. Some a 15-year-old sitting in a basement somewhere who, you know, 10 years from now is going to be a billionaire uh, from having devised a, a new and creative way to compete for consumer dollars. And I, I applaud that dynamism, but it, it, it's just, it, it, just, it reveals a complete uh, 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 ignorance of history to worry that today's dominant firms are somehow destined to remain dominant there's just no reason to believe that at all
2: so true well we've only got a few minutes left at least on my segment and i'm going to change topics a little bit drastically on you here because i think it's it's important that we talk about this um who is james buchanan and why is it important that that people know about him
1: Jim Buchanan is the 1986 winner of the Nobel Prize in economics. He's a former co- colleague of mine at, at George Mason University. Uh, he is the he died at a very old age in 2013. Uh, he is the founder of something called, a co-founder, of something called Public Choice Economics. Uh, and that's just the use of economics to better understand uh, political processes and political outcomes. And, and 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 he he called it politics without romance he said look uh let's make the same assumption about politicians about voters about bureaucrats uh when we study politics that we make about business people and consumers and uh, investors when we study markets we understand that that uh, uh individuals have limited knowledge uh in markets and that you know they are they are seeking their own gain when they enter market relationships let's apply those same assumptions to the study of politics and see what we come up with. Uh, it sounds simple, uh, and, and in a way it is, but the results were revolutionary. Buchanan, uh, again, he won the Nobel Prize for this work uh, because his work helped to reveal politics and political outcomes in a much more realistic light than uh, was done before he began uh, to work
2: it's so interesting I, I i know mostly of him through you and others i haven't had the chance to to read some of his stuff directly but what i what i have learned i've actually applied back to business because i what i think is is interesting about his work is it's almost it can be in a sense we thought of it this way and correct me if i'm wrong here but the study of how groups make decisions right that's an yeah. element of it yes. anyway yeah and yeah. and I, go ahead yep yep
1: no no it's so it's so um uh, yeah, you know, politics is, is basically collective decision-making. And so in order right. to understand the outcomes, you have to say, okay, well, how, how do these groups of people combine together, whether they be voters, whether they be uh, 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 judges sitting in, 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 in a group of judges? And so, yeah, so the, the, the analysis of collective decision-making is an important part of this public choice research that Jim Buchanan uh, pioneered.
2: And where I'm finding it fascinating is reapplying it back in. To business because what I, I'm trying to, to study and understand how groups inside my organization, st- SAGE, how we make decisions. And it's fascinating to see some of the things that Buchanan talked about applied even in these small group settings around, uh, around a business table. You know, just the, the notion of one person, one vote. Well, that's probably not the best way to make a decision on, on certain things. You know, you should use d- alternative voting mechanisms such as, you know, um, uh, rank choice or something like that. And I think businesses should really know about those things
1: <laughs> yeah and and you know uh, one person one vote is has become such an iconic phrase in modern democracies and i'm not saying it's not the best way to go uh but among the things that jim buchanan did in his research was was to explore alternatives uh, uh it, 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 not in a way to give people less voice but in a way to give voters more voice he he, he said look Let's look at, let's explore how other systems of voting uh, might operate. And let's see if these other systems don't reveal voters' preferences more reliably than, you know, a simple one person, one vote. And uh, people who don't understand Buchanan's work uh, uh, jump to the mistaken conclusion that somehow he was uh, opposed to democracy because he was very creative in exploring
2: uh, 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 alternative ways to make democracy better. and, and what's, what is interesting, applying the two things that we've just talked about perhaps together, is you know what, it, it, and what I hear from a lot of people is, "Oh, rank choice would be confusing. Well, not if we were able to vote on a computer. And, right? right. Not if we were That's able right. to to potentially. And look, in and, and Facebook and Google and they, what they do have is they we, we trust their security. Right. We do put lots of people put their money in. Why why not? Let's let's create a voting system around social media. I mean, it's probably more secure than the than the than the paper ballots and hanging chads anyway. Yeah, I,
1: I, I, will, I, I will add this one. One, if, if Buchanan, Jim Buchanan were still alive, he would add that uh, uh uh, it's important. One of the things I like about Buchanan's work is his emphasis on the importance of rules. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he said, "You know, when when it it, it, it it it's one thing to choose who your representative will be and to vote whether or not to raise, you know, let the government, you know, issue issue bonds to fund the school, uh, but the the most important things we as citizens can and ought to do is think seriously about the structure of rules, the constitutional rules under which." under which we live, because it's those rules that ultimately determine how, how good or bad a society we will have. It's those rules that determine how effective or ineffective, how corrupt or non-corrupt our government will be.
2: Oh, great, great stuff. Well, we're uh, up against it again already. This time has flown by uh, our last break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by asktsoe at verisage.com. Uh, please do go out to iTunes and, and provide us with at least a, a rating, if not a review. Those are kind of the currency that we use to, to see how well we're doing. So please spend a few minutes out there on iTunes and do that for us. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage.
4: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE there is no blueprint for running the perfect firm no way to know the challenges you'll face but your journey does not have to be an odyssey experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away experience office tools to learn more visit office tools.com. have you ever read a book that changed your life
3: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Don Boudreau. And and Don, you know, in the news, it's all over artificial intelligence, deep learning, the driverless car, and, of course, robots that are becoming more and more human-like. And you wrote uh, for FEE on their site uh, what I thought was just a brilliant post called Robot Substitute for Jobs, Not Human Creativity. And you started out by saying, what's more human-like than humans yeah, <laughs> You know, if you're worried about a robot taking your job, how about another human taking your job? And then you cite the statistics from the 1950s when we had 62 million people in the labor force. Uh, now we have, you know, 160 million. And it, boy, if humans didn't take your job, then what makes us think robots will? Are, are you still optimistic about even with all of this technological change that we'll be able to still have a dynamic labor market?
1: Oh yeah. I think that the, 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 to the extent that my optimism is tempered, it has nothing to do with, with artificial intelligence or robotics or human ingenuity. It, it has everything to do with restraints that government, uh, would, would put on entrepreneurship and on business creation, uh, you know, taxes, regulations, those things I think are real threats, uh, Robots are not. Look, human beings, from the very beginning, we've made labor-saving devices, and that's all a robot is. It's a labor-saving device. Um, Buckets are a labor-saving device. A wedge, a ledger, I mean, a lever, a pulley, labor-saving devices. Um, And robots are just more advanced forms of labor-saving devices. And yet, the the global population, as well as the American population, is at an all-time high, and we still have widespread full employment uh and so jobs aren't being destroyed jobs are just changing uh and and there's no the his, history supplies zero evidence to support those who assert that that uh innovation and job-saving technologies uh will create lasting permanent unemployment there's just no evidence to support that proposition but people uh keep repeating it uh at, at part of it, it's just a lack of it's ironic. It's a lack of human imagination. You have these great, this great human imagination that, that creates these machines, but a lack of human imagination to understand alternative tasks that people can do when we no longer have to do tasks that are now done by, by machines. And, 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 and we have always found new and, and better ways to work throughout history, and I see no reason why it's going to stop now.
3: You know, I, we always like to say here that the point of an economy is not to create jobs. I mean, if General Motors could produce eight million cars with one person, you you, you know you would be, you yeah. would expect them to to do that. And yeah. and you know that story about Melton Friedman being in China, and I don't know if it's true, but he said, well, if it's a jobs program, give them spoons. Okay. Um, right. You, you it's you've it's got some. You
1: spoons.
3: Yeah. And, yeah. and, and earth-moving equipment, you've got a great analogy. I think this is even better because I just love the mental image, but in Hi- Hypocrites and half-wits, you talk about if, if a public transportation's benefits are going to be measured by the number of jobs it creates, then we should have rickshaws because there's yeah. a one-to-one ratio <laughs> between yeah. the worker yeah, and I, the I, passenger. It,
1: it, yeah, jo- jobs, jobs are a cost. They're not a benefit. I mean, they were a means to acquiring goods and services. The reason people want to work is that what they want to earn income in order to buy goods and services. Uh, and, and so it's not the job that that, that we, we want. And, and as long as human beings have unmet desires, unfulfilled wishes, uh, there will be the potential for jobs. I do not see humanity beginning to approach a, a situation in which we are all living in nirvana or bliss. We all have things, we want more things, we want different things, we want better things, and as long as those desires exist, and as long as governments leave us at least reasonably free to satisfy those desires, there will be jobs,
3: plenty enough jobs in the economy uh, to satisfy these these uh, human desires. Right, right, I, I have incredible faith that we'll always figure out a way to serve one another. And Don, yeah. just on that related point, anytime somebody brings up all of this technology and all of these issues, you get into the whole universal basic income. What's your take on that? I'm Do we need it? to it. Um, the, the, the greatest benefit
1: that anyone today can have is to, to be born in a country like the United States for all of its imperfections. Just being born here means that you have a fabulous opportunity to earn a really high lifetime income. Government doesn't need to give you any any extra money. Uh, As a practical matter, if someone could assure me that substituting a basic income for this monstrosity of the welfare state that we have, if someone could persuade me that that substitution would take place, I might favor a basic guaranteed income over the welfare state if I had to choose between one or the other. I don't like either of them. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I oppose the basic minimum income because I'm quite confident that if we get that, we'd still have the welfare state. It would just become one other feature of this, of this uh, redistributive empire. Uh, is growing in Washington, which I think is an enemy, uh, a threat, to economic dynamism and growth. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm opposed to it.
3: Right, right. Did you ever take a look at Charles Murray's proposal in his book, In Our Hands, where he would propose a constitutional amendment to get rid of all the other welfare programs and, and give everybody basically a UBI? I,
1: I, did, I did, but I worry that that, con- that constitutional provision, even if we got it, would would be no more effective than any other constitutional provisions that we actually already have. Uh, mm, uh, you know, putting anything right. in the Constitution it doesn't guarantee that that the the intention of those who drafted and ratified that provision will come to be. So I I, I wish I shared his optimi- I wish I could share his optimism in that front, but, but I don't at all.
3: Right, right. Plus, I worry about just the morale effect it has and the spiritual effect it has on people just to give people money like the world owes them a living because they're alive. I,
1: I, I agree. I agree completely. Uh, uh, we are responsible for ourselves. I think w- one of the unstated downsides of the universal basic income uh, is that it, it rests on the presumption that the government has this responsibility. Rebel- the government is responsible for us. I don't want government being responsible for me or my children or, or any of us. We are responsible for ourselves. That's what a free society of responsible individuals is about. And, and to, 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 to put government in charge of giving us some basic minimum income is to undermine that important aspect of a free and, and prosperous society.
3: Right, you know, also in hypocrites and halfwits, which which I really thoroughly enjoyed. By the way, it's a great book. Thank uh, you. And po- and folks, we'll post a link to it on the show notes. But you quote Bill Gates, and this may be the dumbest thing I've ever read. But he said slowing population growth has proven to be critical to long-term economic growth. This is just insane, Don.
1: <laughs> yes, he does. I don't know where he got his information. I mean, all the information out there. Runs against that proposition. It seems counterintuitive to a lot of people, but you look at the wealthiest places on earth, and they tend to be the most densely populated places on earth. Uh, wh- one way I like to put it is uh, wh- 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 which place is more wealthy, Manhattan, Kansas, or Manhattan, New York? And the answer is mm. obvious. For whatever the, whatever the joys of Manhattan, Kansas are, I've been there, it's a nice place. Uh, wh- uh Manhattan, New York is a lot more densely populated. That's because again, getting back to this thing that that getting back to your opening, human beings are the ultimate resource. The more human beings you have in a free society, the more resources you have, the richer we are. So popu- population growth is indeed key to economic growth. And that and that is the the the, the greater our population, the wealthier we are. I want more people, not fewer.
3: Right and and Don just in the last minute that we have, what's going to happen? Because I don't know if economists have a model for this when the world's population starts to go into decline, in 2050 yeah. or whatever it is. I
1: hope I hope those predictions that most people find encouraging. I hope that they uh, prove to be wrong. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it's because it means we're losing losing resources, and there are there are other problems with it as well. Uh, but, uh, I I am discouraged by projections of slowing and even declining population growth.
3: Right. Right. It's troublesome, isn't it? Because we don't, we've never experienced it in human history. And so we don't really know the economic consequences of it.
1: That's right. That, That, that's exactly correct. Uh, economists have, I think, decent explanations for why it might in fact happen, um, uh you know in my family myself my wife and I, we only have one child um but um it is it would be unfortunate if it actually comes to pass hopefully there'll be enough people around that that we can uh, uh enough of us to 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 make up for the problem make up for the lack of other people being around but right. it's not a, it's not a good thing
3: it's not a good yeah. thing yeah yeah the, I mean, the future belongs to those who show up. So, Don, thank yeah, you so yeah, much. This yeah. has been wonderful. I wish we had more time, and maybe we, you'll, you'll bless us again and come back on. But thoroughly enjoyed thank this. You. Ed, what do we have up for next week? Next week, Ron, we are interviewing Blair Enns. Oh, excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours.
2: This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage energizing business builders around the world through the the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.